0: Hey, everyone, you're about to listen to a terrific conversation with Dr. Charity Dean. And I think one thing that runs through it is the idea of personal responsibility, that what we're facing here with this pandemic as we head into year three is that we all have to do our part. And I know that the folks that listen to this podcast and the folks that follow and work with the Lincoln Project have demonstrated that they are the ones who are always willing to do their part for their families, for their communities, and for their country. I hope you enjoy this episode, and I hope you continue to be the leaders America needs. Now, on with the show. Welcome back to The Lincoln Project. I'm your host, Reed Galen. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Charity Dean, the CEO, co-founder, and chairman of Public Health Company. Prior to founding Public Health Company, Dr. Dean served as the assistant director for the California Department of Health and was a key member of the executive team directing the COVID-19 outbreak response. She was also profiled prominently in Michael Lewis's recent book, The Premonition. Dr. Dean, welcome back to the show.
1: Pleasure to be with you, Reed.
0: All right, so doctor, you and I spoke about seven months ago, which is both an eternity and, you know, just seems like the blink of an eye but we're also entering our third calendar year, I guess, of the pandemic. And so you were there, you know, at the forefront of it in a public health position, which you've discussed before. But here we are now, it doesn't feel like we have gotten our act together as a country any more now than we did then. So how do you see the world?
1: I think that's actually the big picture, important question to be asking. Here we are two years later, Is the United States of America any better prepared from a systems and institution standpoint, from a science standpoint, from an innovation and human talent standpoint? Where have the successes been? You know, it's time to do, I don't want to say an after action because we're still in it, but I think it is time to do a thoughtful reflection and take a hard look at where we're not better off. The big thing that stands out to me is science rose to the occasion. And we have developed technology, whether it's the mRNA vaccine or ramping up genomic sequencing. We've developed things with rapid speed that wouldn't have been developed before. But I think the harder conversation is looking at our systems and institutions, the role of the CDC, if the public feels like they are getting what they need in terms of real-time guidance, firm decision-making, firm direction, real-time data collection and intelligence? And if the answer is no, then to look at the larger picture of what does the country need, what capability needs to exist. And to do that, I really believe that the lens of history, taking a historical perspective of the last 30 years is valuable.
0: I don't want to talk about the specifics of Delta versus Omicron because I think that our listeners and everybody on the planet is inundated by facts, figures, data, numbers every day. But You know, two years ago when this started, had a different president of the United States, had a different CDC, didn't have a vaccine. Here we are now, a year into a new administration, new CDC, and whether or not you are a corporate CEO of the type that you probably spend a lot of time talking to, or the parent of a child who's trying to figure out, is it safe to send my kid to school? How long do I have to quarantine? The problem is, is that it doesn't seem that there are A, less questions, or B, any answers to the questions that people are still asking?
1: I agree. It seems that there's actually more confusion today about what people need to do than there was a year and a half ago. It's more confusing as an example looking at isolation guidelines. You know, the CDC releases an updated isolation guideline that's five days. Many states are releasing guidance different than that, saying five days plus a rapid antigen test. Some counties are releasing different guidance, and then some individual schools have different guidance. So from my vantage point, it seems there is more confusion today than there was even a year and a half ago. And I think it is the right time to have that conversation because the Biden administration has been in place for a year and made an incredible amount of progress. Rochelle Walensky has been the CDC director now under the Biden administration and put forth incredible effort to improving things, information sharing. And yet there's more confusion today around what people need to do, what the science says, where do I go for real-time information? And they're going to New York Times website or Hopkins website. The CDC is not the go-to place for the most updated real-time information. And I think it's really important that we don't blame people or point fingers at humans, but that now is the time to look at institutions and systems and culture and say, How did we get to where we are that a year and a half into the pandemic, there's more confusion and not less?
0: So a couple of things, because this is something that you and I talked about the last time you were on and is covered, I think, pretty extensively in Michael's book, is the idea of a systems failure, that this really exposed the sort of brittle nature of a lot of our systems. And it's not just medically or the health system. It's the educational system. It's the political system. It's the social way we see each other. It's just brought all of this stuff into stark relief where, you know, just even for me, we have two dear friends who did not really believe that this was a big deal, didn't get vaccinated. And then they got it last week (laughs) and they're like, "Okay, okay, you were right. You were right. But sometimes it takes that. So you mentioned that some of this starts 40 plus years ago. So take us back to the halcyon days of the of the mid 70s. Nixon's gone, Jimmy Carter's coming. How did we get 45 years on from that point to here?
1: I would say it's the most important part of asking any questions today about what we need to do is going back through history. If it's okay, can I share with you the story of my journey with Michael Lewis as he was writing Premonition?
0: Sure, please.
1: I've never spoken publicly about this because it's deeply personal, but my journey through that year, when he was writing the book, changed a lot about my thinking on what the country needs. So as I was, you know, teaching Michael public health and microbiology and sharing stories with him about my experience as a local health officer and state health officer, he would stop a number of times and he'd put down his pen and paper and he'd stare at me and say, what happened to the CDC? And I would say, I don't know. I only know my experience. I was born in 1977. And he'd say, but the CDC used to be brave. I remember the CDC of the 60s and 70s when they were innovative and took risk and leaned forward. And what happened? And I would say, Michael, I don't know. And that happened three or four times over about a four-month time period. And he was like a dog with a bone. He wanted to find the answer and he wouldn't give up. And so he went and dug into that because he needed to find that answer. And when Michael came back to me and shared with me the story of Dr. Sensor and the story of the swine flu affair and what happened in 1976 and 1977. And then he shared some of the original letters. I cried. I cried as I read them because I said, oh my goodness, the CDC used to be brave. And Dr. Sensor, what he did, he's a real health officer. He's part of my tribe. He leaned forward in a setting of uncertainty, made a brave decision. And so Michael told that story in The Premonition, and I think it's a really important story. And the summary of it is that Dr. Sensor, as the head of the CDC, the CDC director, made the decision to pull the trigger on rolling out wide-scale vaccines for a new influenza variant that appeared to be more likely than not about to cause a large pandemic, catastrophic impact on the U.S., And as we know, you have to make high-stakes decisions in the setting of uncertainty. And if you're wrong, you're going to get your head chopped off. But if you're right, you save hundreds of thousands of lives. That's the role of a health officer. And the CDC director did that. And what ended up happening, you know, when you're making a decision that's 80-20, 80%, 20%, it can go in the 20% direction. And then everyone thinks that you were crazy to have pulled the trigger on that big decision. The influenza variant ended up not being the catastrophic pandemic that they had thought. There were side effects from the vaccine that was rolled out. It was expensive. You know, it took a lot of resources. And the White House was not happy. And Dr. Sensor lost his job and took the fall for that. Even though all those who were at the table when the decision was being made had supported it and understood that this was the brave, bold decision that had to be made. After that, the White House changed the CDC director role, who had been a lifetime appointment, like Dr. Fauci. They had been a civil servant appointment. They changed it to a political appointee, meaning this would be someone that did two years, if you're lucky, three, if you're really lucky, four, as a presidential appointee, meaning they no longer, like Dr. Fauci, were in their role you know, for a lifetime and couldn't be fired for political reasons. And that shifted the entire objective of the director of the CDC to be politically oriented or optics oriented rather than leading with bravery and making hard decisions that might be really unpopular because they were based on science. They were based on being a battlefield commander instead of an academic institution. And what happened from that point on, you know, looking at the 80s and the 90s, the last 30 years, is that the incentive of the CDC or the incentive of any any political appointee. Leading an institution under a political appointee was more towards political optics or being absolutely correct, being academically certain before you make a recommendation. And I think that's a really important historical perspective because my experience with the CDC as an institution has been, and again, I was born in 1977. I was a local health officer. I was 34 years old. I was 40 years old when I became the state health officer of California and then served as the number two after that. All of my experience with the CDC was an academic institution that needed academic certainty before making a decision or a recommendation. The battlefield commanders, those were the local health officers. And when Michael showed me these letters, I have one of them in front of me from March 12th, 1979, between Professor Newstat writing letters back and forth with D.A. Henderson. And as I read these letters, I cried because they describe that turmoil, that wrestling between the CDC directors wanting to maintain the battlefield commander bravery versus a White House and a you know political machine wanting to incentivize the CDC to be a political appointee. And over 30 years, you can imagine how that changed The culture. It changed the culture to need academic certainty.
0: Well, and the truth is, this academic certainty, too, everybody wants to be able to say, we tested the hell out of this and we tested it with an inch of its life and it should work. The problem is, to your point, first contact with the enemy, whether or not it's a political opponent or a pandemic, often proves you entirely wrong. But for the person who was completing the academic study or the research, They can always lean back and say, but this is what the data showed me. Therefore, what else was I supposed to do?
1: That's right. You know, when I talk about being a battlefield commander, what I mean is in an outbreak, oftentimes in early stages, oftentimes you're making decisions as much based on instinct as data because the data is not there yet. And if you wait for the data to be there, you will have acted too late. And so we as a country actually want the leader, to be using instinct and to be taking risk. A Churchill, you know, looking again back to World War II, you know, my favorite topic is Winston Churchill versus Chamberlain, where Chamberlain wanted the appeasement strategy and Churchill was pushing forward to make decisions based on instinct and act very quickly to contain the threat that was Hitler. We want those leading the early stages to have ability and permission to lean forward and make decisions on instinct where there isn't any data yet. And we have to give them the leeway to be wrong. Because if they're doing an 80 20 decision like Dr. Sensor was back in the 1970s, we have to give them the ability to be wrong. If we as a country say you have to be academically certain, then we're always going to lose to COVID. We lose that battle every time. And that's where I think owning our role in the institution that we as a country have created is where the conversation needs to start. It reminds me of, the 12 steps, which are incredibly meaningful to me.
0: True. Sure. And so of those 12 steps, you and I were talking a little bit before we started recording, what's the one you think of them that matters the most?
1: You know, for me, the 12 steps became a really important part of my life some years ago. And I had to hit bottom. I had to really hit bottom before I was willing to take a hard look at myself and To take ownership of the wreckage in my life, decisions I had made, and go through it with searching and fearless rigor, and to take a searching and fearless inventory of myself and rebuild my life from the bottom up based on the 12 steps. And as we go through the 12 steps, as I was walked through and I've walked many beautiful humans through since those many years ago, you know, when you get to step four, The beauty of step four is it requires the person doing the 12 steps to look at all of their resentments, all of the failings, all of the things in their life where we've pointed a finger at someone else and said, you know, I am angry that this person or institution failed me. Here's what it affected in my life. And then the really hard part is they have to say, what was my part in it? What was my role in that? Even if it was 99% someone else's fault, even if my role was only 1%, I'm going to zero in and focus on that 1%. And the reason why that's so important is unless I do that, I'm stuck. I can't find a solution. And I'm actually powerless because it means that other person that owns 99%, that's controlling me. That's controlling my anger that's controlling my actions. And when we look at our 1%, when we own our shit, that's when we have hope. And then we say, aha, I was the one that made the decision that actually led to this situation. And suddenly I'm empowered today to make a different decision to lead to a different outcome. So I can't speak for others. I can speak for myself and I can speak for my experience with the 12 steps that I believe The right conversation the country needs to have is a step four type conversation saying, instead of pointing fingers at the CDC or at a CDC director or at a president or at any one person, instead saying the CDC is an institution or government is an institution, these agencies, this has not worked well. There's more confusion today than there was before. Here's all the reasons, all the ways it's not working. And then saying, what is our part in creating that as a country? Going back in history, where did we make a decision as a country that put ourselves in the position that we're in today? And once we identify that, which I believe is going back to the 1970s and what happened when Dr. Sensor was let go and the CDC director became a political appointee instead of a lifetime appointment, and the consequences of that, the ripple effect that created essentially a political institution that needed academic certainty. When we own our shit as a country, When we take ownership as a country of our role in that, then we can say, wow, we as a country have the exact institutions or government agencies that we created. So, how do we want today to make different choices? How do we want to move forward? What do we need as a country? How do we make different choices? How do we stand up something new or change what we have in front of us? And so, I think it's a fourth step approach. I think the country is ready to have that. Conversation, which is why I'm willing to talk about it today. And I, I haven't up to this point.
0: So you might have this feeling that Americans writ large are not huge fans of self reflection <laughs> and admitting that they might be wrong about something. There's also the old trope of, you know, you get the government you deserve. So, you know, the thing that I, I found about the pandemic, and I, this is probably more psychological than medical, is that I think. It took away a friction-free life from tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions of Americans, and it put them back into an analog space where every day they had to think about what it is they were doing, whether or not it was going to the grocery store, whether or not it's their kids, whether or not it's schools, getting on an airplane, seeing family. Everything now had to be put through the filter of, is it safe for me and my family to do this? Is it safe for my parents? Is it safe for classmates and teachers? And our kids will probably be fine because they're resilient. And if my grandparents and your grandparents survived the Depression and World War II and everything else, you know, people are resilient. Populations are resilient. But I just want it to be over. This has lasted so long. Why isn't it over? And the truth is, is that I don't know when it'll be over. I don't know if it'll ever be over. But to your point about people taking stock of themselves and what they're responsible for, Forty percent of the country is like, I ain't doing what I need to do. And you can't tell me because it's freedom. It's freedom. And from my perspective, whether or not it's the diminution of science and doctors and the medical profession, and we've seen this with Dr. Fauci in particular over the last year, it seems that if we're looking for rock bottom from my perspective, which admittedly is far more political than yours, we haven't gotten to rock bottom. The problem is rock bottom politically gets pretty ugly for everybody. And so that's my concern is how do you take that mass social need for being part of a democracy, which means we collectively agree that this is how we want to govern ourselves. But that does not absolve you of personal responsibility to do your part in your home, on your street, in your community. And what you're saying, I think, is true but it cuts across everything not just with the cdc not just with the pandemic but everything we have outsourced everything and said i don't want to think about it i don't want to deal with it or i don't believe in it it doesn't work anyway just want it to leave me alone and now we're sort of faced with oh god we are part of this world we are part of this planet and we are part of these communities or whatever and we must interact with each other some way you know other than sitting on this device all day
1: yeah well and i think what you're articulating is that it comes down to owning your part whether you're an individual or us as society or us as a country that's looking back 30 years in our part in what we did 30 years ago and the wreckage that's caused today and that's where I guess my response would be I think there's a lot that we can learn from the sobriety community from the 12 step community you know one of the concepts is hitting bottom is a beautiful place to be but there's always a lower bottom Even when you think you've hit bottom, guess what? A trap door can open and you can fall like three stories down and it's even worse. And so the hope is that we pick our bottom. We say, I don't want to go any lower than this. This is my bottom. I am going to be willing to take a hard searching and fearless inventory of myself and look at my role in this. What's my responsibility? How do I own some of this mess? And then say, How am I going to make different decisions or how am I going to clean up this wreckage moving forward? Until we hit bottom and do the hard work of a searching inventory of ourselves, we don't have any hope because then we can't change. And that's where I think as hard as this moment is for the United States and as painful as it is for me, who loves our country, to watch our democracy in a really fragile place, my hope is that the silver lining is that people individually and collectively will be willing to look at our part in it and take ownership of that and move forward with a renewed sense of what my individual responsibility is and what our collective responsibility is. And as far as consequences, here's what I would say to these very severe consequences we're suffering today. It all goes back to what happens when you lose at containment. Can you see now why I'm so passionate about containment and why I say the focus for the United States has to be having containment as an option? If we contain this in the beginning, look at all the pain and suffering we avoid. Look at the economic devastation we avoid. What we're suffering today from is a result of failing at containment in the beginning. And if we want to have a shot at containment, then we need an institution that can actually do tactical operational containment in the early days of a threat. How do we get that? Well, it requires bravery. It requires making high stakes decisions amidst uncertainty. When you don't have data yet, it requires behaving like David Sensor did in the 1970s. And I don't know that we have that today.
0: A lot of this also comes down to being willing to make a decision. It might be the wrong decision. might be the right decision. And not making a decision is a decision. But let me put it this way, because I don't, I don't want to say that Dr. Sensor made the wrong decision. He made the decision he needed to make at the time. It did not turn out to be the threat he thought it would be, and there were consequences from it. But the idea that you can make any choice in life, and there's somehow no consequence to it, there's always going to be, to your point, a ripple effect. There will always be second and third order effects of everything you do. So the idea that we wait and we wait and we wait, and like the world is burning around us, and we're like, well, we haven't been convinced that it's a fire yet. It smells like a fire and it looks like a fire, but we have not yet studied it closely enough to understand whether or not it's a fire. Like, well, the house is burned down, so I guess it doesn't matter at this point because you stood there waiting around. Now, you could have said it doesn't look like that bad a fire and be right, or you could be wrong. And one way or the other, you've either saved the house or you've doused it with hundreds of gallons of water and the place is wrecked anyway, right? Uh, But the point is you have to make that decision. And in our country now, whether or not it is at the political level, whether or not it is the administrative level within government, the legislative sphere, the corporate sphere, the medical sphere, making a decision means you are willingly taking on the risk of being wrong, and even if you're right, potentially being pilloried for it. And that's a very difficult place for a lot of folks to be because they see everything in the context of like, everything is so public. You can go from being someone's never heard of to being the most... Infamous American on the planet in 48 hours, and you don't get to hide behind your Twitter feed or your Facebook page or whatever it is you like to say online. Suddenly you are a real, fully formed human being dealing with the consequences. I don't criticize anybody. It's just not a normal thing for people being willing to do that. So, how do you find the best and brightest who are willing to do those things? And I think your larger point is that in the 70s, if it was Dr. Censor or whatever it was, there were subject matter experts who were intentionally distanced and protected from political influence because everybody ultimately knows political influence brings short-sighted decisions, no decisions at all, but all of them tinged with, well, how does it poll? And the truth is, like, public opinion surveys are fine, right? If you want to ask, like, how a car looks, not so much probably when it comes to a massive public health emergency.
1: And even further, if we take that thought even further— When people realize that every local health officer and every state health officer is a political appointee, it's not just the CDC director. Every one of them is. Then they realize, wait a second, our entire U.S. public health system right now is a patchwork quilt of political appointees who can be fired if their appointing board doesn't agree with a decision they made. No wonder this patchwork quilt doesn't work with one uniform response. And instead of pointing fingers outward, we say, oh, this is the current system today that we have in the U.S. Let's take ownership of how we got here and then say, but what system do we need? If we all agree that the consequences our country is suffering today of not having contained COVID in the beginning are enormously high and that we would rather have containment of a fast-moving pathogen as a capability, what do we need to have containment? Well, We need a technology platform with real-time intelligence. We need decision-makers who can lean forward and be brave. And they might be making decisions based on instinct, but my God, they're going to make a decision and lead us. If that's what we want, then we have to say, what do we need to do to get there? Because right now we have a patchwork quilt of political appointees who are beholden to political interests at the local level, at the state level, at the federal level. And I think that's a real challenge. You know, related to that, Rochelle Walensky is my hero. She volunteered to step in amidst a circus, amidst an out-of-control pandemic, to lead the CDC. Do I agree with every minutia of every decision she's made? No, I I probably don't. But she's got my 100% support because what she did is brave. And we can't expect Dr. Walensky or any CDC director in one year's time to overcome 30 years of an institutional culture. That's not realistic what we can do and should do is say, is that institutional culture, is the setup that we have today, is it working well? I think we can all agree. I think both parties can agree, whether you know, you're know you against vaccinations or think COVID is a hoax or wherever you fall on that spectrum, I think everyone can agree this didn't work and it's time for something that does.
0: And so given the sort of fractured nature of the country, Do you wait to build consensus on what that is? Or like you mentioned with Dr. Walensky, who did not, she probably had to sit in that chair knowing this is going to be a tough year. This is going to be a tough couple of years. Every decision I make will be put under the microscope. I mean, look, just for a moment of levity, I just got this text from a friend of mine. The CDC recommends you wake in the morning and you step outside and you take a deep breath and you get real high and you scream at the top of your lungs what's going on. (laughs) Right now. I hope that Dr. Walensky has a sense of humor enough to know that that's like a 90s song lyric. Right. Uh, For non blondes, I believe. But that's, I think, a pretty good distillation of like folks don't know what to believe. Right. And so like they start to parody the things they hear because they're like, well, those people don't know what's going on. Right. They clearly don't know what's going on. So how do you convince a populace? Again, whether or not there are folks who wear their N95s, have been vaccinated and boosted and live in a hermetic bubble from the folks who say, it's a hoax and I'm going to take the horse dewormer and I'm never going to get vaccinated. Like, how do you create something that is workable in that context? Because it seems difficult. But in your mind, like, where do you start? I mean, you can't eat the elephant in one bite.
1: Well, I'll first say that I have actually followed with great amusement the CDC says hashtag on Twitter. And the reason is that one of the tools in my toolbox is humor. Most doctors have to have humor in their toolbox because we see really dark and difficult situations. We see a lot of human suffering. We have to make high stakes life and death decisions. We have to keep a sense of humor. So I actually appreciate some of the funnier memes on CDC says. I think they're funny. I think they have lightened the mood a little bit. But they've also highlighted your point that there's so much confusion out there right now that it's now become a meme. You know, and speaking to where people fall on different ends of the political spectrum and, and what do we need, I believe the answer to that is leadership. In the very beginning of COVID, the lack of a clear, strong voice of a battlefield commander, a Churchill, saying the reality to everyone. I believe people can handle the reality if we tell them, look, here is what's about to happen. Here's the math and microbiology. This is going to get really bad. Here's what we need everyone to do this is gonna be hard, we're all in it together. We have seen our country do that and rise to the occasion over the last almost 250 years or longer. We have seen our country go through incredibly difficult times when every person stepped up and took ownership of their role. But they do that when they're led by someone who is telling them the truth and saying what's gonna happen. I think that that was a real gap in the beginning of COVID. You know, this is part of what inspired me to launch the Public Health Company. I recognize that we need a technology platform delivering real-time intelligence to all nodes in the network for the benefit of all. This can't just serve public sector. This has to be private sector. This has to be a whole of society response. And so what did I do? I said, well, in the absence of that existing, I'm going to go build it. And I can't stand it if this doesn't exist in the world. I know what the country needs. I know what the world needs. So I'm going to go build it. And I think as difficult as times are right now with a country quite politically divided, I will never give up hope in the United States. I will never give up hope in that rogue rebellious streak in our communities and in our citizens to innovate solutions where nothing exists. I believe one of the silver linings of the devastation of Omicron and the devastation of this pandemic is that we as a country have been shown the fault lines of the failures in our system. And those fault lines run through the whole system. They run through all the institutions. This was an institutional failure. And I believe the silver lining is we now have a shot at standing up something that works. If our leaders, and I include most importantly, business CEOs, if our leaders are willing to have the hard conversation of what is our part in the fact that this capability didn't exist up to this point, and what changes do we need to make moving forward? And that includes taking a hard look at our public health system and saying, this didn't work. How might we build something that does?
0: So now, like, where do we go from here? Let me ask you the question I'm almost positive you didn't want me to ask, and I'm sorry for this. Is this thing going to go away? Will it go away without the things you're talking about? Or is it going to be something where every year there's a new variant, every year there's going to be a hot season and a low season, every six months we're going to get our boosters, and, you know, 30, 40 years down the line, maybe the thing burns itself out. But, like, can we get to a place where the new normal can be created without the kind of stuff you're talking about?
1: I believe we're in this for the long run. You know, we can look at it from a math and microbiology standpoint that this virus is going to continue to mutate and select for more fit versions of itself. And with Omicron cases surging, every person that's infected is a walking test tube of the virus accumulating new mutations and new opportunities to create a more fit version of itself. So from a microbiology standpoint, the pathogen's winning. From a mitigation or containment standpoint, we missed our shot at containment. So this is going to be mitigation. We are in this for the long run. I too am very concerned about the prospect of Having new variants with meaningful vaccine escape, which is what we'd been worried about all along. Last summer, that's why I was so, so, so concerned when CDC stopped tracking vaccine breakthrough cases, you know, if they were mild or asymptomatic. Many of us in the public health community were concerned because we knew that then we would miss our shot at identifying and containing one that had meaningful vaccine escape. Indeed, here we are with Omicron. We have a variant that has meaningful vaccine escape. In other words, If you're vaccinated, it's incredibly protective against hospitalization and death, and that is a massive success of science. However, you're still going to get infected and be infectious to others. You may still get sick, and if you're vulnerable, if you have underlying health conditions, you are still at very high risk. The real solution, I believe, is a one vaccine to cover all variants. And in other words, from a larger picture, it's the Biden administration making investments in the science and the technology to win the long war over the next 10 years, not just being reactionary to the variant in front of us. There will be more Omicrons. There will be many more Omicrons. um, Investing in a multivalent vaccine, investing in a technology platform that tracks the genomic sequencing with clinical outcomes and vaccination status, we still don't have that platform today. So it's science and technology investments from the Biden administration to win the long war and not just fight the battle in front of us. And I see really hopeful signs of that. I think, quite honestly, this season right now for our country with Omicron feels to me like acceptance, that we are in this for the long run and we need long-term solutions and we need to invest in those long-term solutions right now.
0: I mean, just as someone as far from the medical field as one could be, dealing with friends, family, um, it's there, there very much is a almost like a chicken pox party ethos. We're all going to get it anyway. Might as well just get it over with. But if I'm hearing it among my small community, and that's writ large, is that the right way to look at it? Is that sort of whistling past the graveyard? And if it is long-term mitigation that is coupled with the scientific research and deployment that you talk about, you just said 10 years. So what you're saying is my kids are going to be in their 20s?
1: I believe that COVID will be with us for the long run, you know, potentially for the next 10 years. But as far as impact to daily lives, I believe that will be with us for the next two or three years, especially for those who are vulnerable, kids that can't be vaccinated, immunocompromised, you know, elderly persons. So the decision of wearing a mask of carrying your vaccine card, of modifying our behavior for going to church or going to the gym, contact tracing in schools, I believe our daily lives will continue to be impacted for the next two or three years. What's hard about that, and the reason why I say I think people are coming into acceptance, is that a lot of people really just wanted to get back to life as normal, and they were hopeful that Delta was the last variant we would see. And that wasn't the case. And so as Omicron, you know, the very first signs of Omicron, and I have so much regard for the scientists in South Africa that sounded the alarm. From the very first signs of that, I remember on Thanksgiving Day and, and in the days after, going through the early data, reading everything I could, and the realization that absolutely this is going to have meaningful vaccine escape and be incredibly transmissible, that reality started to percolate through the country, through business leaders, those that had planned return to office. And had to put those plans on hold, you know, large business events that they had to put on hold. So I believe this is with us for the long run. I do believe it will impact our daily lives for the next two to three years. But again, the original point that I'm so passionate about is these are the consequences of not containing the pathogen in the beginning. It's also the consequences of not having the early on investments in the technology platform that's needed or the science, you know, the vaccines to win the long war. And those investments need to be made. You know, the old adage of when's the best time to plant a tree thirty years ago? When's the second <laughs> best time today? Right. I think is applicable here. And there's one other point I want to make. Is government meant to be the solution to everything? This was a gut check for me. You know, as part of the Newsom administration, loved serving in that administration, loved my team, and had come to the realization government can't fix this, but capitalism might. There are capabilities that should come from the private sector. There's innovation that should come from the private sector that solves problems for all of society. And it takes entrepreneurs saying, I'm going to try. I'm going to stand at this capability out of Silicon Valley, out of the private sector to solve a problem that really government is not best positioned to solve. Boy, has it been a learning experience for me the last year and a half as I stand up the public health company. And I'm more convinced today than I was even a year and a half ago, that private sector innovation and capitalism can solve problems that government can't. And I want to see more people jumping in to do that.
0: Well, I mean, think about, you know, all of the different pharmaceutical companies, you know, Pfizer, Johnson & Johnson, Moderna. I mean, they came up with these things. And the idea that, you know, they haven't stopped. But You have to pair that with a populace willing to say, I don't want this to go on for the next 10 years. I've got to do my part. And so I think that it is one of those rare top-to-bottom, bottom-to-top issues that until the leaders lead and the citizens, citizen, for lack of a better way to put it, you know, we're going to be stuck with this. All right, so doctor, do we have any good news before I let you go?
1: I am full of hope. I believe the good news is that The silver lining of the crisis that we're in right now, specifically with Omicron, but overall with the accepting reality that we're in this for the long haul, is that it's revealed the problems in our current systems and institutions. It's revealed the gaps in science, in technology, and created an opportunity to build those things that did not exist before. I'll give an example that I interface with every day as CEO of the public health company, before COVID, my experience with CEOs or chief risk officers is probably the most common C-suite archetype I interface with. The thinking that someone was coming to save them, that if a pandemic threat emerged, that the government would save them, their local health officer or the CDC, and their epiphany during COVID that no one is coming to save you. You own this risk and you need a capability has actually led to a new realization that's created this opportunity to develop that capability among private sector leaders that couldn't have been developed before. Or another way to say it, right now, CEOs, I believe, actually have the largest role to play in their policies and their approaches to the direction that COVID heads in communities or in regions, even more than government. I'm seeing this trend where businesses or community leaders are really looking to CEOs and private companies in the private sector to say, what are the policies? What are we going to do? I think that actually is a silver lining because any response has to be whole of society response. This cannot be government alone. I actually find a lot of hope in that because I think that the private sector leadership, they have ran to the fight, you know, from vaccine development and distribution to a host of other technologies, to private corporations adopting policies, you know, pushing forward resources for employees, you know, working remotely, enabling that, caring for the most vulnerable. They've really risen to the occasion. So I think the silver lining, the hope that I have is there's a lot of opportunity for the private sector. There's a lot of opportunity for government to say, how do we stand up the capabilities right now that didn't exist that we need? Yeah, we're two years into COVID. Sure would have been great to have those two years ago, but the best time to make those investments is now. It fills me with hope building the public health company. We're building a global biosecurity platform with real-time intelligence. Our team is motivated every day because of the crisis of this. I'm inspired by people like you that want to have these conversations to put it out there. They're pretty vulnerable, pretty vulnerable conversations.
0: Well, I mean, you know, just ask everyone that knows me. They'll say that vulnerability is my number one asset. Just kidding. But, you know, just as we're recording this, it just came down that the Supreme Court had struck down the Biden administration's mandate of vaccine or test for large employers. So that goes to your point even more, which is I think we saw Jamie Dimon of J.P. Morgan say, get the jab or don't come to work. And that takes it to your point out of the realm of the government saying You have to do this, which, again, we've seen so much resistance to, to the private sector saying, you want to come to work? You got to get vaccinated. You got to get tested. And then it puts it on the individual, because remember, you're not giving people no choice. You're giving them a choice. If they choose not to get vaccinated or quit their job, that's on them. That's
1: right. It's less a vaccine mandate. It's more a choice mandate of you'll need to make a choice between these options.
0: Right. And I would venture to say that the vast majority of people when faced with job, no job, pay, no pay, rent, no rent, food, no food, are going to, you know, say, okay, this really pisses me off, but I guess I'll do it because most folks can't afford to just quit their job. So I think that's a good way of looking at it. I think also I've always thought that whether or not it was the Biden administration or the CDC is that they should have put this much more into the economic context as opposed to the necessarily the public health context, which is if you want to go out to eat, if you want to go to the store, if you want your coffee shop to survive, that's survived by the skin of its teeth twice, it ain't going to survive a third time. And put it in the economic context, which is it's good for you, it's good for them, good for your employer, good for your bottom line, as opposed to just saying, we're going to tell you what to do, when to do, how to do it. Like, should people listen? They should, because I do believe it's in their best interests. But now we have to play sort of rhetorical games to get folks to do what it is they're supposed to do.
1: I 100% agree with you. That's so interesting, the Supreme Court decision, because it really does speak to personal responsibility slash organizational responsibility, right? Of now, the scales have been tipped, where CEOs of private companies the onus is now on them. You know, they're going to own the risk. They're going to own the policies that they have for their organization. And those that do decide to move forward with a vaccine choice mandate, put that choice to their workers. And it's an interesting dynamic. I do not believe those that would say it's a bad thing. I think there are some really good parts of this. Again, personal responsibility, organizational responsibility, leadership, leadership by CEOs and by private sector. Instead of the government saying, You have to do these things because we say you have to. And again, this is me speaking as a former local health officer. I love the government. I love being a health officer. And yet, it's personal responsibility and taking ownership that really makes a difference. This democracy, this is still a massive experiment of democracy, right? And this is still a massive experiment of business leaders really having the critical leadership role in this pandemic response. It's an important role. They own the role. They own the risk. They have an incredible amount of influence. I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing. I think we're going to see a lot of silver linings come from it, including new capabilities, new resilience stood up within those companies. They have to step into that role right now.
0: No, I think they do because if they don't, and the government either won't or won't be listened to, as always, Doctor, you know this, these sorts of things hit the people who are least able to contend with them, whether or not that's the doctors and the nurses at the hospitals, whether or not that's the folks for whom working at home is not an option. If you're an hourly worker at the grocery store or at the pharmacy or the restaurant or the bookstore, or whatever it is, like you don't have the option to say, you know what, I'll check your groceries out from my house. Like it's just not a possibility. And so it's also, I think, incumbent upon Americans to say the world is not you centric. You might be the center of your universe, but everybody else feels the same way, which means none of us are. And what's, you know, ironic enough, Doc, you know, as a former Republican is one of the key tenets of the old Republican Party was personal responsibility. Like to your point about number four, like you're responsible for your own shit, (laughs) right? Like, don't blame others. It's on you.
1: Yeah. Well, and that's why I think the 12 steps is such a relevant framework for that conversation with the country. They could all be summed up under owning your shit. And then. Choosing a path forward that's full of hope because now you can make different choices. You can take responsibility for yourself. It's the core of who I am. It caused a revolution in my own life. It changed the trajectory of my life and I've lived it and I've seen it change other people's lives.
0: Now, listen, me too. It's an epiphany, but it's you got to go through a lot of stuff to get to it too.
1: Every bit of it worth it. And I count my life as before and after. I mark my years as before and after and my hope for the country and for the political division is that the silver lining of what we're going through right now and hitting bottom is that we will have that epiphany as a country and we will mark the years as before and after COVID in a positive way of the changes that came out of it from when we hit bottom, we owned our shit, we took a hard look at a self-inventory and we made a decision to stand up stuff that does work. You know, we said we're going to make different choices the next time and personal responsibility organizational responsibility has to be part of it. And we're seeing that develop right now, today.
0: Well, thank you so much for this. I hope you will come back soon. Before I finally let you go, where can folks find information about the Public Health Company?
1: They can certainly go to our website, phc.health. We are rapidly scaling out the company to develop what I believe is this critical technology. We're building a global biosecurity platform. It's a massive adventure and folks that want to find out more can go to phc.health.
0: And also everyone, if you have not read Michael Lewis's The Premonition, of which Dr. Dean is a major player, it is absolutely worth the read or the listen. Go out and get it at your favorite bookseller or Amazon, wherever it is. Dr. Charity Dean, I want to thank you again for coming back. I hope you'll come back soon. And everybody out there, we'll see you next time. Thanks again to everyone for listening. Be sure to follow and subscribe to The Lincoln Project on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or however you listen. Don't forget to leave a five-star review. To connect with us, follow us on Twitter at Project Lincoln, and for more information on our movement, to join our mailing list, subscribe to our newsletter, or make a contribution to our efforts, visit LincolnProject.us. Also, be sure to check out our LPTV lineup, including The Breakdown with Tara Setmayer and Rick Wilson, which airs Tuesdays and Thursdays at 8 p.m. Eastern, as well as We're Speaking with Lisa Senecal and Maya May, which airs Wednesday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern. All shows you can stream live on The Lincoln Project's YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter pages. And we'd love you to join us for our newest show, Lunch with Lincoln, which airs every Friday at noon Eastern on our YouTube channel. For The Lincoln Project, I'm Marie Galen. See you on the next episode.